It's time for Making It Personal, a personalized SC podcast. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to Making It Personal. Today, I am joined by our very special guest, Dr. Latoya Dixon, and I'll give you a little bit about her for those of you who have never heard of her. Um, She is a former middle school teacher in South Carolina, a former principal, former director of the South Carolina Department of Ed Office of School Transformation, and she currently serves as the director of early childhood elementary and gifted education in York One. Welcome, Dr. Dixon. Hey, Carrie, how are you? Doing well, doing well. So let's go ahead and kick things off. Um, I know you to be a fierce advocate for equity in public education. And I think in education, we like to use that word a lot. But right now, um, the inequities that we see um, in education and just across our nation are glaringly obvious. So my first question for you is, can you speak to what equitable education really means? And where do you think these current inequities stem from in regards to our state? Wow, what an incredible question. I mean, that's a huge question. Uh, We really need to spend probably a semester together to answer that. (laughs) But I'm going to try and give you an answer for this podcast. Uh, When I think about equity and um, in a sense of of public education, it's about access and opportunity. And sometimes I fear that folks get that uh, conflated, believing that once we give children access, that opportunity naturally occurs. But that's not so. So we have to look at not only access, um, do students have access to the same materials, resources, human capital, talent, uh, talented teachers uh, that all other children have, but we have to look at how students are being excluded from opportunities. So it's a matter of looking at our policies. And the question I like to challenge educators to ask themselves all the time is, when you're looking at your most rigorous courses, who's not included? Who's not represented? What are your policies? And how are those policies impacting whether or not kids have a fair and equitable opportunity to take advantage of those courses? And I like to think that we have good intentions in education, and sometimes we develop practices and policies because We believe that by doing that, we're helping set kids up for success. If we aren't careful, though, we can find ourselves creating policies and practice that actually exclude uh, simply by the nature of the design and the policy. My oldest sister likes to talk about how sometimes when we're looking at things that are inequitable, we fail to acknowledge that it's often by design. Uh, It's been designed that way so that certain students get an opportunity and others do not. And so if we were to get really honest about that, real and authentic, then I think it would be easy to see if we just plotted our our student demographics, um, not just by race, but by socioeconomic status, by uh, giftedness, by uh, uh, exceptional, you know, exceptional identity and saw who is being being included as a part of everything in our school, different activities, different courses, rigorous courses, and who's being excluded. I think it's glaring. And when we ask ourselves why those students aren't there, we actually find ourselves falling back to the policy. When we ask ourselves why is that the policy, what we find is many times those policies were created on purpose, to designed to keep 
certain students out and to put certain students in. And Carrie, I have to say this because I think we often fail to admit that there are many students who don't meet the policies, but they still get in because right. of the network that they have or the capital that their parents have. And so where we often like to lean on policies for reasons why people are excluded, we don't usually lean on them when it's time to make an exception to the rule. Um, I challenge mm-hmm. educators everywhere, especially in the state of South Carolina, to do their part, but making sure every student in our state has an equal opportunity to meet the profile of the South Carolina graduate. Absolutely. Um, so to piggyback on that, um, I, I can honestly relate to a lot of what you said, just thinking about education and, you know, just growing up in our state and just reflecting back on, you know, who did those opportunities for a GT um, testing? Uh, who decided who gets to take a GT test when I was growing up and who got access to those things and, you know, who benefited greatly from those um, policies, as you said, um, is something to think about. Um, so in light of in light of that, uh, the next question that I want to ask you is, why do you think that talking about race and equity in education is important? Right now, um, race is a national conversation due to, you know, the incidents that have occurred with George Floyd. Um, what place does a conversation regarding race and equity find in education, especially in South Carolina? Well, Gary, you know, I'm going to go back to the second part of the first question you, you asked me as well uh, about where inequity stems from, where I believe inequity in our state stems from, because uh, I think there's no doubt about it that there is an intersection between race and inequity. And not just in South Carolina, but all over our country. We have to acknowledge that at one time our Constitution counted black and brown people as property and did not account for them as human beings, but as three fifths of a human being. If you can wrap your head around that kind of foundational logic, it can help you understand why we're still fighting for equity, um, why we have such a long way to go. Um, and I believe progress is being made. You know, when you ask me, where does it stem from? It's been in the earliest foundational pieces of our historical fiber. Um, and not just with slavery and not just with the three fourths of the constitution and not just with the voting rights, voting rights act, not just with the civil rights act, but let's talk about public school itself. We have had segregated schools. Um, segregated schools were a way of this, this nation. And when they were dismantled in order to be uh, integrated with all deliberate speed, many states across our country, including South Carolina, acted with no speed at all. In fact, they refused to comply with the highest order from the, the highest court in the land. And the only way they did comply was to be held accountable by not being told they would not receive federal funds if they did not comply with the law. People were forced to comply. And so I'm always interested to tell people about a speech that I'm just fascinated with that was given by the 104th governor of South Carolina, James Burns, who still has many buildings named after him and even a high school, at least one I know in our state. And and James Burns in his speech, his 1954 speech, I believe it was, to the SCEA, in response to the Brown versus Board decision, 
said this, I will destroy the public education system before I integrate it. And that's paraphrased. Mm. But you can find the actual historical document on the South Carolina Archives website, as well as many other websites. I have to let you know that that's where we are. And so when you have a history like that, then you understand that when integration was made to happen, you had the pop up of several segregation academies, private schools named after Confederate heroes where white folks decided to send their children to school so that they would not be forced to send them to public school with black children. We're still trying to overcome some of that thinking. We're still trying to overcome some of those ways. And so we cannot bury our heads in the sand and pretend like race, there's no intersection between race and inequity. Inequity intersects with lots of things. It, it intersects with socioeconomic status. It intersects with poverty. It intersects with race. But we can't work on it if we can't be honest about it. The next thing I want to ask you, um, you kind of, I think, um, hinted on this a little bit earlier in one of your statements, but um, what does personalized learning mean to you? And how do you think that our framework for personalized learning, um, well, for those who have not heard of our framework up to this point, um, the South Carolina Department of Education Office of Personalized Learning has a framework that includes student ownership, learner profiles, learning pathways, and flexible learning environments, all serving the purpose of um, helping students to achieve the profile of the South Carolina graduate. But back to my question, what does personalized learning mean to you? And how do you think we can connect what's happening in the nation right now to personalizing learning for students? Well, you know, there's lots of co conversation around culturally responsive pedagogy. And I think when we talk about per personalized learning and we talk about student agency, learner profiles, it's about who a student is, who they are as a learner and who they are as a person. I don't know that you can separate a student's person, personality, a student's uh, personal being from their race. I don't know that you can separate their profile from their culture. And so to me, I see personalized learning as a way to address this in a, a most positive manner to say not only do I see you, who you are, LaToya, as a brown female in this world, but I honor you and I'm willing to allow you to explore those things that are meaningful and relevant to you being who you are. Um, I'm wondering if teachers could approach this from the lens of personalized learning and if it might would ease the conversation that some seem so fearful of having when it comes to race. You know, when we began to talk about people as individuals, we no longer have to talk about groups of folks according to a certain characteristic. So when you're talking to me as your student, you have to talk to me about the fact that I'm Latoya. I am black. I am a girl. I'm a female. I'm a woman. You know, those are the kinds of opportunities I see that could really uh, be married to where we are right now in our country. You know, the young people give me hope. You, you watch our young people and you can see very quickly, Carrie, that they're not going to wait for us. They're not waiting for mm -hmm. us to give them what they need to know. They're seeking it. They want us to feed them with the tools to be creative problem solvers. They're finding ways to collaborate, to make meaningful change. And they're not waiting for us to show them how to do it. And so if we're going to be a part of that, if we're going to be a part of helping them be ready, college, career, 
world life ready, then we have no choice but to create a more personalized experience for them. Gone are the days where we are sorting kids and grouping them. This group is going to college. This group is not. This group will just pray for them. Those days are gone. Every child and every family expects their child to be invested in personally. They want you to take a personal interest in their child and know their gifts, their talents, their passions, their likes, their dislikes, their strengths, their opportunities. And they want you to build a learning experience around those things that allows their child to reach their maximum potential. And so I see the framework as an integral part of how we can address some of these things that are happening right now in our country. What do you think in this moment that educators and educational leaders should be doing? Well, I think it starts with being honest. I think not just educators and educational leaders, but everybody. But I think it starts Mm -hmm. with being honest. I think that um, educational leaders and educators have to take a long look in the mirror. They have to ask themselves, what role have I played and what role do I want to play? And what can I play? How can I make a difference in this world? What can I do differently? How can I be a change agent? How can I support students in um, helping the world be a more peaceful, loving, inclusive, and I don't like the word tolerant, appreciative place of all kinds Mm -hmm. of people? And I say that because, you know, toleration sounds like I put up with you even if I don't like you. Appreciation means I can see the good in you even if we are different. And so... I think as educators, we have a huge responsibility. We're often blamed for all the ills in society, but we need to take a a different approach with that and think about how our work can help heal. We can help. We can be a part of the healing that's so needed in this nation. We can do it by the examples we set for our students. We can do it by the relationships we build with our colleagues, by making sure we're setting an example of what it means to be appreciative of differences, to work with all kinds and types of people, and to be able to do that in a way that is peaceful, loving, enjoyable, appreciative, and effective. Um, Educational leaders have a responsibility to all children. We've always said that. And so gone are the days of burying your head in the sand and saying, "I, I would say something, but I don't feel comfortable, or I don't really feel that way, um, but I don't feel comfortable saying something when I see something that looks like bigotry and looks like prejudice, we've got to be willing to be courageous. You know, I've got the same carrot. We're either held hostage by our fear or made free by our courage. I try and choose Mm. courage. And we've got to be willing to be courageous. And while that sounds cliche, it's certainly not. Courage is hard to come by these days. And I think it is what keeps people who don't see themselves necessarily as prejudiced or racist but miss, often misunderstand the problem of racism from speaking up in certain situations. And so if we can use our collective energy to be brave, we can change a lot of things and set good examples for the young people we're serving. If you could see me over here right now, I've, I've just been shaking my head the whole time you've been talking <laughs> because I agree wholeheartedly. I love it. So. Let me ask you a, another question. Um, I know that you've spent some years um, yeah. doing a lot of work with leaders and um, leaders in education. And um, even on your podcast and your blog, you really speak a lot to what it takes to be a leader um, and a leader in education. So um, from a leadership standpoint, um, with 
you know, all the things that are happening in our country now surrounding race, but also coupled with the fact that, you know, we've just, we are currently experiencing um, COVID-19. And um, honestly, for a lot of school districts in a lot of areas, some tough decisions are having to be made regarding um, going back or not going back and, you know, what that's going to look like. Um, so from a leadership perspective, what do you think is the most effective way to lead a school or to lead a district into this upcoming school year, even with all of its uncertainty? Well, you know, I like to think about it this way, Carrie, lead with your heart, manage with your head. And so I say that to say we have a responsibility, first and foremost, to keep children and staff members and educators safe. To have school in as safely and as effectively as a way as possible. And so I know leaders are feeling a lot of pressure and structure, but I think we have a unique opportunity buried in this challenge. And that is to revisit what's really important to us in public education. What really matters. I don't know about you, but when school shut down in March, my initial reaction was, okay, we're closed. I never knew that we would not be back to school for the remainder of the year. But when it was announced all over the country that standardized testing was being waived, I didn't hear a single outcry from a child. I didn't hear a single outcry from a parent. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear a single outcry from an educator. And I want to be clear that it's not because I think people were relieved in terms of not having to be accountable. I think it's because people finally felt trusted. You know, we have tons of internal accountability measures and ways we monitor student progress and learning. We're teachers. It's a natural part of what we do. We instruct, we assess, we intervene, we enrich, we monitor, we evaluate. It's a part of the cycle of teaching and learning. But we finally felt the freedom that someone trusted that we would be able to serve our kids in a way that would allow us to know if they were making progress, if they would need extra help when they returned to school. And we were able to deliver that instruction in a different way under dire and quick and emergency circumstances. I think leaders have to be um, brave enough to do what's right for their community, for their context. I think peer pressure is something that often gets buried as something of the adolescence years, but it's not true, I can tell you. When you're leading sometimes and you look around and you see other leaders, and this could be as a teacher in your classroom, I'm not necessarily referring to just folks who are in leadership positions because I truly believe you can lead from anywhere. You're looking around and you see that somebody else is doing something a little differently, or you see that everybody else is doing it like this, you often feel compelled to, to change what you think. But I think the best leaders have such a conviction that they consider the ideas of others but they commit to the ideas that are best for the children and the folks that they serve. And I can tell you a story, Carrie, that I learned that lesson um, in, in the last few years. When I was working at the South Carolina Department of Education and I was writing our school improvement model under ESSA, I can remember that the law said that schools that were in improvement status would have to have intervention and that that intervention would have to be directed by the state. As I worked with other state partners, I saw many states developing catalogs of vendors and products and, and reading programs and math programs that they were going to force school districts to buy and use. 
But I felt convicted and compelled that context mattered, that I just couldn't mm-hmm. say, here's a list of things and you choose from this list. But what I really needed folks to engage with is in the process of improvement, to understand, A, their own context and what their needs were, and B, to have the skills and the acumen to be able to select the, the, the intervention that best met their needs. I worried that I was doing something so drastically different than other states that I almost relented and began to change what I had originally planned. But I didn't. After mm-hmm. I presented in a multi-state fashion, I got some excellent feedback. And a year later, South Carolina was named as one of the top states for the way we approach improvement. In fact, I was asked mm-hmm. to be a part of an Ed Week webinar, a market brief, to talk about our approach. It was, uh, it was featured in Ed Week and in other magazines. It got national attention. But I think all the time about if I did not have the courage to commit to my conviction, to think about South Carolina, the diversity of our state, what our needs were, and simply modeled myself or our model after what other states were doing, that would not have happened. And I found a year later, states going back and revamping their plans and taking the approach we've taken, that context matters, that teaching people and giving folks the skills to operationalize improvement and to address and diagnose exactly what they need, their needs were and have the acumen to select the right intervention was more important than building a catalog for them to choose from. I believe improvement happens with people. And so mm-hmm. in this situation that we're in, I say all that to say leaders have to be uh, cognizant of their context. You've got to know the information. You've got to know what, what your community looks like, what spread and 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 risk look like for your community, for your students and staff, but you've got to apply that to your context. You know, you can't just replicate what's happening in the neighboring district or neighboring school because that may or may not work for you. You know, I believe that replication without adaptation is dangerous. It's something I said all the time and I'll continue to say it. So in this day and age with this pandemic, it's about courage and commitment. It's about adjust addressing context. It's about leading with your heart and managing with your head, making sure people are okay, and trying to do the very best we can for our students and our staff. Thank you so much, LaToya. Um, We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back for our special segment. We are back for our special segment with um, Dr. LaToya Dixon. So um, really quick, I want you to choose. This is our segment that we call making it or breaking it. So I want you to either share um, a make, which would be a highlight or something that you've seen or heard or something that you're personally making happen in regards to personalized learning um, for students. But we also know that adults our learners as well. So um, even in that regard, you can share a mate or you can share a break, which would be um, a concern, a barrier, or a struggle that you've encountered on your personalized learning journey and how you might have overcome that. Oh, Carrie, this is hard. This is hard. Let me think. Um, who, a make or a break? Well, mm-hmm. I'm trying. I guess I'm going to go with a make. Um I'm trying really hard to organize my time effectively. I've always been very disciplined. And so figuring out how to utilize my time in the best way possible, given the set of responsibilities I have professionally and personally is very important. 
have found that I've gotten busier and busier as, um, you know, my taking on a new role and a new job. And as my, uh, my PLN, my professional learning network expands, sometimes I struggle with saying, no, not right now, not today. I tend to have a desire to help anyone who asks me to help them. And I still want to do that, but I still want to pursue my personal interests. So I have a lot of interest in writing. In fact, I'm, I'm considering right now um, writing a second book. I'm not sh- real sure yet what that's going to look like, but some some information will probably be coming out somewhere in the next six months or so. So I hope mm-hmm. everybody will stay tuned about that. Uh, but I've got to organize my time uh, outside of work to to make sure that I am doing what I need to do personally for me. So I noticed when we went into COVID that I had gone into this place where I was not doing what makes me personally most vibrant. And one of those things is exercising on a regular basis. Mm. So I challenged myself to find a way to exercise. I'm used to going to the gym. I like to run on a treadmill. I like to get on the elliptical. I suddenly couldn't go to the gym. So I had a mindset of, hey, I can't work out. I can't go to the gym. It's closed. So I thought and thought and thought about that, talked with a friend, started trying different exercises at home. And I ended up landing, Carrie, on a weighted hula hoop. I bought a weighted hula hoop. Hmm. And I'm going to tell you, it's changed my life. And so I was really? working to make personal time when I get home from work to make sure I get my exercise in with my weighted hula hoop. You know, a couple of times a week, I try to do three to four times a week and on the weekend. Um, and I can't even begin to tell you the difference it's made in my energy level, my sleeping. And so I see that as a mate in terms of making sure, you know, my agency, I know for myself that exercise, I know exercise is really important. And so using what I know about myself and what I know about me as a learner and a leader and making an adjustment in my routine so that I can show up as my best self. That is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. You about to make me go buy a way to hula hoop now. <laughs> it's the truth now. I'm going to tell you, it's no joke. You, you got to work your way up to it. But my longest stance without a drop is 83 minutes. I'm really proud of that. Oh, wow. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. The last question I want to ask you is, how can people reach you? If, if someone's listening and they've really enjoyed everything that you have to say as much as I have, how can they get in touch with you? Oh, Carrie. Well, the first way is to follow me on Twitter. I'm all over Twitter. I'm on there every Saturday and every day of the week, just about. Uh, you can follow me at L-A-T-O-Y-A-D-I-X-O-N, the number five, no spaces. That's Latoya Dixon five, all lowercase letters, no spaces on Twitter. They can go to my website, leadershipwithlatoya.com, or they can listen to my podcast on any platform, Leadership with Latoya. Uh, any of those three ways are great ways to follow me. My Leadership with Latoya work also has a Facebook page, Instagram page, and I welcome anybody to come join the fun. Everything's free. I believe sharing is caring. Collaboration is where it's at. I'm always looking for another good partner to think with. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll be right back to close things out. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Making It Personal. 
Be sure to connect with the Office of Personalized Learning on social media. Tweet us at PersonalizedSC and follow us on Instagram at SCPersonalize. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, share with a friend, and tune in for a brand new episode every month. We'll catch you next time on Making It Personal. See ya!